Physician scientists help us to bridge the gap between bedside and bench. What's their life like? You are listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing current therapies for new uses. And my guest is Dr. David Tichy, a practicing pediatric hematologist, oncologist, a world-class laboratory and clinical researcher, and an instructor in the Department of Pediatrics, Division of Oncology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Tichy and I are discussing what life is like for a physician scientist. Dr. Tichy, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Dr. Bloom. Dr. Tichy, tell us a little bit about your research background. What did you do as an undergrad, and where did you do your MD? I first became interested in research when I was in college. I volunteered in a basic science hematology research laboratory at the Medical College of Virginia that I enjoyed a lot. Then I went to medical school at Eastern Virginia Medical School, my hometown medical school, and wasn't involved in research at that time. I became interested in research again during my pediatric residency training. I went to D.C. Children's Hospital or Children's National Medical Center and had the opportunity to work with a great translational research scientist, Greg Greenman, who's currently the head of the Children's Oncology Group. And he was studying um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia in children and taking techniques from the bench and moving them directly to the bedside. How did you decide then to stay part clinical, part science, and how do you split up that day? It's an excellent question. It's a difficult question, too. It's hard at most centers to split up a day and to do both. I found that I loved research primarily, again, in my residency. I liked it a lot when I was an undergrad and decided I wanted to do both. That one, I wanted to be at the bedside helping patients directly. Um, My interests were in pediatrics and then also in the laboratory performing research that I could take directly to the patient. And to do it successfully in this country, you have to be at a center that has the infrastructure to support it. So I'm currently at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is a very supportive institution to allow physician scientists or clinician scientists to dedicate some of their time to taking care of patients and then have a significant percentage of their time involved in the lab. It's hard to do it 50-50 or even to put most of it in the clinical side, really to be successful at it, you need to do about three quarters of the time in the lab or doing the research and about a quarter of the time taking care of patients. And why do you have to split it up like that? Well, you could. I mean, most of the traditional model and most physicians spend most of their time in the clinic. To be successful in research and perform research, you have to get grants. You have to publish papers. There is an academic tree, and it takes time um, and a lot of effort to successfully run a lab. So to be successful in research and to fund yourself with grant funding, it takes quite a bit of hours and effort. So what is the focus of your clinical research? So my research kind of focuses in a, a number of areas. The big overall scope is looking to develop novel therapies for children with a number of diseases, primarily a rare pediatric disease called autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome, and then another disease um, that might be more familiar to listeners, which is acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Are you doing mostly bench work? Are you doing clinical work, a combination of those two? So most of my focus is what I call more translational research. So research, as you probably know, can fall into three categories. There's 
hardcore basic science bench research where you study the molecular aspects of a disease. There's what more people consider traditional clinical research where you take a drug or something that somebody else investigated that you know might be promising and you randomize and treat lots of patients with X condition with that. Or translational research, which is kind of in the middle, where you're not as focused on the hardcore genetics of the disease. You're more interested in how a drug may work in preclinical models. And then as you find those drugs work, moving those drugs into clinical trials and kind of doing both yourself. And I focus mostly on the translational stuff. So studying drugs in the lab, in models in a Petri dish, in mouse models, and then if we find drugs work, then moving them into clinical trial. Tell us a little bit about your clinical practice. Who are you treating? How often? Is it a group practice? Are you by yourself? It's a large practice. At the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, I am affiliated both in the Department of Pediatrics in the Division of Oncology and the Division of Hematology. So hematology, blood disorders, oncologic or cancer disorders, I spend another 5 to 10, maybe 15% of my time. My hematology practice, part of it's inpatient, taking care of a breadth of different patients, and part of it's outpatient. And my outpatient practice is primarily dedicated to treating children with ALPS or autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome. It's a referral clinic that I get a lot of second opinions from around the country, plus the number of patients I take care of myself. In my oncology practice, I take care of both inpatient and outpatient, a number of children with cancer, and I also attend on bone marrow transplant. So your week is split up with some clinical care, some research. Do you do teaching as well? I do do teaching. I don't do too much formal education at the medical school the University of Pennsylvania we're affiliated with. Um, it's more teaching at bedside, teaching in rounds, teaching the fellows and the residents who are coming through the different rotations. How do you cobble together a salary from all that different stuff? So most institutions like myself determine your salary based on the effort that you do in the different arenas. So for myself, about 25% of my time is dedicated to direct patient care in the clinic, and my salary, therefore, comes from the hospital, um, more of a traditional billing-type system, hospital, bills, insurance companies, and then that covers that part of my salary. The rest of my salary comes primarily from grant and research funding and support um, that I have to obtain myself. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dr. David Tichy, pediatric hematologist, oncologist, and clinical researcher at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia about the life of a research scientist. So how much research funding does it take to run your laboratory? Actually, quite a bit. So I work in the context of a big laboratory run by Dr. Stephen Grupp as well. And our laboratory has about 10 different people who work in it, some of which get their own salaries for grant support, some of which we have to fund through our grant support. So there's personnel is always the largest source of money that it takes to run a lab, um, technicians, et cetera. Beyond that, um, you need money for supplies. You need money if you do any kind of animal research to upkeep a mouse colony, for example. You need money for purchasing. We're in the genetics era now, so a lot of things involve more expensive techniques, doing gene chips and that kind of stuff, and that takes money as well. So as far as an overall annual cost, it's in the many hundreds of thousands. And how many people are in the lab? Our current lab has... I think four MDs, one PhD, and about five technicians. Where does your money come from? Does it all come from the government, all from private? Does it come from the hospital itself? A little of all three. So a significant percentage does come from the NIH and the government. Another significant chunk comes from 
private foundations and organizations. And then there is some overhead intermittently from the institution itself, depending on how uh, grant funding is going. And of those grants, how much of it goes to overhead and how much of it goes to salaries and supplies in that part? If by overhead you mean how much goes to the institution, the overhead rate can vary depending on the grant, and most grants set that at the onset. Um, it can range anywhere from 2 to 66%. Overhead goes to, for the basic things, just do stuff like keep the lights on, um, pay for staff to keep the place clean and in order, but it also pays for all the administrative help that's needed to apply for grants and then to process them when we get them. So ordering things, purchases, are not cared for by people in the lab ourselves. We have a central purchasing department downstairs. Other budgetary manners, allocating money, those kind of things are paid by overhead costs by paying for fiscal administrators. What's the percentage that the NIH pays for overhead? It depends on the grant, but usually it's about 60%. And that 60% mostly goes to the institution? Yes. So usually when you apply for a grant, if you ask for, let's just say, just as a round number, you ask for a $500,000 grant. The Overhead comes on top of that from the NIH, so it's not taken out of the investigator's part. It's what the NIH matches to the institution. How do you think the NIH is doing these days on supporting translational research? I think they're doing better in some avenues than they were 10 years ago, and I think they're doing worse in some avenues than they were 10 years ago. Um, I think there's a move at the NIH to support these avenues more. However, um, in the 90s, as many people know, there was a massive buildup in NIH funding across the United States as we went through an economic boom, and more and more science was funded globally. More recently, while the NIH has not cut the budget, they've been existing on the same level of budget for the past few years, while science has gotten more expensive, and that's making it so it's more of a scientific grant funding crunch. For example, grants that were funding half of all applications submitted 10 years ago are now funding seven, eight, nine, ten percent of applications submitted now. So I think while the NIH is doing its best and trying to support a lot of good quality research, a lot of times it's difficult in the current fiscal situation. Are there also more applications coming in? That's an excellent point. Yes, there are more applications coming in too. I think that things were so prosperous in the 90s that it led a lot of young people like myself to go into the scientific arena. So therefore, if there were people who are going into science, uh, as physician scientists, there's more people applying for funding. Are you at a disadvantage when you apply to the NIH because you don't have a PhD after MD? Yes and no. I mean, early on in a career, it can be more difficult because one of the things that they look at at the NIH, which is logical, is what are the reasonable chances that the person who's applying for this grant has the ability and the success of bringing it to fruition. And having a formal training, in, for example, in a PhD, a lot of times can help with that. You're trained in how to write grants. You're trained in, in that training. You probably spend more time doing research and then therefore get more papers. So when you're young, having a PhD can be a large help to getting those early grants. I think once you get to be more senior, and I'm speaking even more senior to myself, sometimes what you've done and how good your ideas are speak for themselves, and a lot of times your formal education isn't really in the mix that much. Does the NIH do a lot of funding for the minor diseases, the orphan diseases like autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome? Not as much as they do for the major diseases. So I think that one thing they look for is nobility or novelty. How novel is this? Is it a new idea? And two, they look at how 
the scope that something might affect. And sometimes when it's something that's very specific to minor diseases and in a competitive grant world where there's a limited resource allocation and a small budget, I think sometimes the, the minor diseases may get hurt more than some of the bigger diseases. I think that as a pediatrician, there's far less money going into the pediatric coffers than there's in the adult coffers as far as as a whole. As a pediatric oncologist, where pediatric cancer as a whole is far rarer than adult cancer, there's a smaller piece of the pie. And then when you look at a rare disease in the pediatric oncology world, it's even a smaller piece of the pie. What does a physician scientist bring to clinical care and research? I want to thank our guest, Dr. David Tichy, a practicing pediatric hematologist, oncologist, a world-class laboratory and clinical researcher, and an instructor in the Department of Pediatrics Division of Oncology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for talking to us about his life as a physician scientist. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatment for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.